This is Jim Cowan from the Collaborative for Student Success, and this is the Route K-12 Exploring Education Recovery Podcast. Each week, we travel the country on a kind of road trip to talk about the ways federal recovery dollars are being used in states to reshape education. Along the way, we're holding up the best examples with the hope that those practices are repeated in other schools. Our guest today is Kent McGuire, the Program Director of Education at the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. Kent has served as president and CEO of the Southern Education Foundation. He was dean of the College of Education at Temple University. He was an education program officer at both the Pew Charitable Trusts and the Lilly Endowment. He also served as assistant secretary at the U.S. Department of Education. Kent, you've been a warrior for public education. Thank you for that work, and thank you for joining me here today. Glad to be here, Jim. So we are back from the holidays, right? We are marching smartly into 2023. I'm just curious from you how you feel about 2022. What are you sort of taking away from it as we start this new year? Are there some things that give you hope? Are there some things that are keeping you up at night? I am just would like to give you the floor just off the bat to give me your take. Well, the first thing I want to say is, As the year drew to a close, Jim, I was genuinely tired, nearly exhausted. I mean, that's the first thing I want to say. And if I could feel that way, imagine how people out in the real world, right, on the front lines. And I think that includes school superintendents, chief state school officers, school administrators, and certainly teachers and other educators. And it's just hard for me to imagine that. And here we're sort of at the halfway point, I suppose, for them. I'm a glass half full kind of guy. And so I am hopeful as we go into 2023 and beyond that there are Things we've started to make sense of in terms of what the kids have been through and more sense of the kinds of things we'll need and want and need to do to sort of help them rebound, you know, from perhaps the most challenging couple of years, you know, if we jump too quickly to calling the question. Uh, on, you know, on recovery, because there's still a lot of money sitting out there in the system. Yes, there is. Right. And I worry about how well these resources will be deployed. All the constraints associated there with, I think the truth of the matter is that probably more money has actually been spent than we are publicly aware of. The other reality is that less money has been spent than probably needs to be (laughs) in order to make the progress we need to make. So those kinds of dynamics give me pause. And finally, I worry a little bit that that the political context, I just would love for things to calm down, right? And I'm not sure that they will. And I would love for education to be less politicized. Mm -hmm. It's too big a system for politics not to be a part of it. I'm not naive. But I'd like 
the temperature to come down enough so that people don't feel like they have to run for cover mm -hmm. out there and can, in fact, think big thoughts, use their imaginations well, and maybe be, you know, try some things. You know, if there was ever a moment where we need to be open, you know, to a little more imagination and boldness, we're in it. And so it's that sort of the interplay between politics and the kind of leadership and bold action that worries me. Those, so I hope that as we go into the year, you know, maybe there are enough of us that sort of try to clear that space or at least speak to the need for it, that our leaders and our educators feel like we have their backs or they at least enjoy some measure of cover. I share your feeling of, of exhaustion after 2022. I think definitely our team here feels that and senses that from, a, from across the education field, I think, given some of the things that you were saying about feeling like there is this politicization of actions that creates this kind of concern about being too bold and and creating too much distraction in those actions. The whole idea of this podcast, as you know, is about we're going into states and identifying what we think are hopeful things and bold things that will make a difference. Um, we've had people like Kirsten Basler from North Dakota has been here to talk about school board governance. Great program that they've got going on. We've had Mohammed Chaudhary from Maryland here talking about some of the teacher support efforts that they've got going on. We've had Charlene Russell Tucker from Connecticut here talking about really great work that they're doing with a research collaborative that's data focused and trying to identify, you know, with very strong intent and transparency, which of the investments really are cutting through the chaff and making a difference. Those are some of the great examples that, that we've seen. As we're starting to look at that, I'm curious from you, how should we be judging success? Because we're trying to consider now at this next stage of what we've got going on with the Recovery Hub, mm -hmm. which things should we continue to follow because we have hope that these are the ones that are really going to make a difference and those can be replicated states. Are there some metrics or are there some success points that you think are most important to help kids succeed? I'll do what people in philanthropy can get away with. You know, we sometimes offer, you know, sort of lofty and ponderous, you know, you know yeah. answers to those kinds of questions. But so, for example, although I actually think, you know, this would be a big deal, it would be great, it seems to me, if students were feeling better. Mm -hmm. And... Um, you know, what's that mean? It means that they were safer, you know, less anxious, more confident, had a sense of agency and purpose. And so, you know, I do think it behooves us to figure out ways of probing for that, mm -hmm. uh, particularly, Jim, given some of the data we have about the, just the emotional stressors and anxieties that uh, beset 
you know, our students for the last couple of years. We're getting a briefing here in another week or two from an organization called Youth Truth, which for us and others does a lot of surveying of students in terms of how they experience school. And we pick up a lot of information there that underscores the fact that, you know, the kids and the adults have been through quite a bit. So measuring that stuff or including having an interest in that that kind of information, I think will still be important, you know, this year and, you know, and next. At the same time, I'm a continue to be a strong advocate for a blend of assessment information. You know, I I wish we would give more credence to spend more time reporting on the kind of through year and diagnostic assessments that maybe tell us where we need to focus. They give us a better real-time sense right. of who's learning what and, and where we might have some particular challenges that we need to put our heads together to solve and how we need to focus. But the end-of-year assessments matter, too. You know, that's what tells us if we're actually making progress year to year. And, you know, I, I'm... Um, I'm optimistic that we'll, there will come a time when we'll actually figure out how to connect those two ways of knowing. Because I think uh, having a better balance between the two, Jim, might help the system uh, make more consistent progress. Yeah. Right. So you are not a stranger to the the world of the policies surrounding the National Assessment for Educational Progress, or NAEP. And as we saw last year, you know, the NAEP scores were not were not good. And from my organization's standpoint, we were hoping states may have been maybe a little shown a little more sense of urgency around those results in, in identifying the investments that they were making. How are they going to address those those scores? Right. So let me ask you, given that old hat that you had from your your work on the board, what role do you think that exam should play? And given what you just said about, you know, like maybe finding the a rhythm between NAEP and and state some of the assessments, where do you think we should go? What are you hopeful for? So look, on the one hand, I I actually think that you know NAEP in its various forms represents maybe the best truly comparative measure available to us, right? right? And so for that reason, it does seem to me that it's the kind of thing that we want our policy officials to pay serious and ongoing attention to. And so when the data reveals the presence of a pretty dramatic drop, it should get our attention and it should give us pause. That, I I actually think, is real. What we don't want 
is for folks to sort of lose their minds and just jump to the conclusion that all is lost. What Mm -hmm. we do want is, to your point, to really bring forward a sense of urgency about how important it really is now to focus on things that'll help kids rebound and ratchet up their learning. I might have been looking for more conversation in response to these data, I'll say it like that, than I think I saw or heard. But I guess the moral of the story is I, what we should conclude, it seems to me, is we're potentially at risk. And that the idea that we could lose 20 years of progress in a fortnight is a big deal, right? Yeah. And so shouldn't we put our heads together, right, to think even harder and more imaginatively about what it might actually take to get those gains back? Now, I've made a point one of the last times I was with you is that we probably were slipping in terms of that progress even before the pandemic. That's part of what I mean, Jim, by what's the contest that gets set as these data are released. I wouldn't assign all of what we saw in the NAEP data to the pandemic. That's my point. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. And I think from our standpoint too, like we recognize we're sitting in the cheap seats compared to the to the leaders and the principals and the district leaders that are dealing with this on a day by day basis, and we are very empathetic to that. And you know, personally, I have no idea the pressures that are that are felt in those those items, and dealing with you know with with the day to day demands of of having those roles. So I think you're right about you know f- trying to find that balance. So I do know, Kenneth, you like the the Hewlett Foundation has prioritized teaching and learning as a focus point. What are some of those successes that you're that you're seeing? I assume you're kind of alluding to some of that right now. Yes, lots of things. I mean, I sort of as a principle, I'd or a concept, I'd argue that one thing that has emerged is helping folks think about. Look, you have this sustainability problem with the recovery dollars, right? There's this cliff, you know, at some point. And so a big question is, what moves can you make in the short run, right, that you could figure out how to sustain over time, you know, with the resources that you're going to have. So I think found some examples of where some of our district partners have made investments in professional learning to help people focus on new roles and responsibilities. Jim, that allow them to think about working in different ways organizationally. We have examples where Baltimore is a good case where folks have tried learned how to deploy their most skillful teachers differently. You might think of it as raising class size instead of lowering it because of the ability to stay with some of the hybrid designs that they <laughs> they had to experiment with during to during the pandemic they've held on to some of those and tried to normalize them i think a big one has been you know the district realized that they were giving short shrift to the assets and capacities of community organizations or of higher ed 
And well, let me say it differently, put it more in the context of recovery, that not all learning happens in school and that we should learn how to give more credit and credence to the opportunities kids have to learn things outside school. The longer term policy question it begs is, okay, well, how do we give credits for that? You know, you know, right. how it right. So there's work going on to figure out how to normalize some of that. And then I think the maybe the biggest and most widespread change or shift that we have seen is there came a point in which folks, because they weren't in school, you know, school didn't know how they were doing. And so this sort of getting better data on how kids are experiencing it has given rise to trying to figure out, well, now that we know this, you know, what do we change so that uh, we get the kind of longer term motivation and engagement that we need to see? And what kinds of things can we do differently of particularly for secondary school kids, you know, who some of whom we've had a hard time getting them back. Right. Yeah. Right. Eighteen dollars an hour at Amazon suddenly, you know, looks pretty good if the if the alternative isn't very interesting. Right. So so there's a long way to go here. But, you know, we have we have been, I think, pleasantly surprised. I'll say it that way by some of the things folks have learned, have decided to keep doing or are trying to figure out how to do to create a different kind of experience for kids on the back end of this than they had on the front end. You wrote a piece recently where you were talking about the need to expand students' critical thinking rather than restricting what they learn. What do you think teachers, just educators in general, should do given the political sort of hot potato that this has become to navigate those waters. Yeah. So when I wrote that piece, let me just say, uh, I was trying to figure out, you know, how not to, to be part of the problem. Right. Right. But rather part of the solution. And so for me, this was a yet another example of, of trying to be for something as opposed to against something, right? And then I said, you can't ask teachers to do more of something that we want if we're not prepared to help them with it, <laughs> yeah. right? Right. And so the next thing I want to say is, and this goes back to my, er, my first point in your earlier question about investments in professional learning. So let me say again, those are the kinds of investments you can use those time-bound or time-certain resources on to help adults get better at something. In addition to trying to hire more people, I've got to help the ones I have get better at what they do, right? So here's another case of that. And helping them get become more culturally competent is a part of, of overcoming this. Now, none of us want to, to sort of ask people to have their heads chopped off. Right. You know, and taking 
personal risk. And we have data that's telling us or revealing to us that how this has put some classroom teachers at personal risk, you know, the, some of the worst of what we see out there. But all I'm asking for or suggesting, in addition to reading the article, is that teachers are honest with their students. That's our ask, really, yeah. is yeah. for teachers to be thoughtful and critical thinkers and problem of themselves. So, you know, the, I do want to go back and put a one more concern on the table. I'm not, I don't want to end this way, because it's, but I, I want to put the concern on the table. Right about the time the recovery funds have been exhausted, I think will be a really unanswered question about the health of state economies and therefore their appropriations for schools. And I would, it would be a shame if, you know, as we hit this wall on the recovery funds, we run smack dab into a moment where state appropriations go down and some attention to uh, how to work around or through that Jim, I think is needed, or at least some attention to how likely that might be, so that it is yet another thing we can plan for. You know, the harder the Fed works on putting the brakes on the economy, you know, one of the ripple effects of that might actually be that we hit a small recession that, you know, really works against us. Um, yeah. That's, I'm worried about that, but I meant to speak to that back way back when you asked me, am I worried about anything in, you know, 2023 or, or beyond? That's the thing I worry the most about. The thing that I am actually most encouraged by is that there is a genuine spirit, a genuine sentiment in the ecosystem for wanting to do things in new and different ways than prior to COVID. Let me just say thank you for your time today. I think your comments are spot on and useful. Um, and I'm excited that you're continuing to be in the space, Ken. So thanks for coming out today. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And uh, this was fun to do. This is Jim Cowan from the Collaborative for Student Success. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Route K-12, Exploring Education Recovery, where each week we showcase ways federal recovery funds are reshaping schools by talking to the people doing the hard work to educate America's kids. Reach out to us at edgyrecoveryhub.org slash routek12 or follow us on Twitter at our handle at Student Success.